This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country. Our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Hey, Candace. Katie, when you think of the American Wild West and all the outlaws of fame and legend and lore, who comes to mind? Well, Butch Cassidy, for one, and Billy the Kid, for two. Billy the Kid actually had a whole lot of names, or a lot of aliases, I should say. He was born Henry McCarty, but he also went by Henry Antrim, William H. Bonney, and, of course, the kid, as he was I guess, somewhat affectionately known. And he's sort of a, a folkish figure, and there's not a whole lot of, of records that exist to show precise details of his life, as in when he was born. We know when he died, but... Mm-hmm. Because his birth date is a little bit suspect, people suspect that perhaps some people said he was born in 1859 and died in 1881, which would have made him 21 years old. So it wouldn't have made the sheriff who killed him look so bad for killing a minor. And we don't know very much about his early life. We do know that he was born in New York City and that his mother died of tuberculosis when he was fairly young. And some historians and chroniclers of Billy the Kid's life would say that his mother's early death is what catapulted him into a lifetime of mischief-making, because some eyewitness accounts from his childhood say that he was, you know, as much a little boy as anyone else, just running around town, causing mild mischief, nothing extreme. And his stepfather was in the picture for a little while, but after his mother's death, he was pretty much out of the picture. Thanks. And exactly. Billy was forced to uh, do for himself and bounce around to different foster homes. And the details of his young life sort of pale in comparison to the trouble he got into later. And he didn't become the kind of cult hero that we think of him as today until uh, the sheriff who killed him, Pat Garrett and M.A. Ash Upson, wrote The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. 
a sensationalistic tale of his life. Exactly. And I haven't read the book. Katie has read it 12 times <laughs> in four different languages. And counting. And counting. But if any of you have read it, I'm a little bit curious about how Billy the Kid is portrayed because to read some accounts of him, it's almost like he was the troubled teen who was reconciled to a lifetime of, of crime. A cold-blooded killer. Right, but I'm wondering if, if Garrett makes him out to be just a ruthless monster. Well, because other accounts just say, you know, he started getting in a little bit of trouble in his teens, but nothing too big. I mean, he didn't have much money anyways, so he was maybe picking things up that weren't quite his. And- like the butter. Exactly. Do you remember the butter? A little, a little butter theft. A little butter theft. He stole it from a rancher. The kid had no money, so he filched some butter and sold it to a shopkeeper. And he got caught, obviously, but he only got a uh, um, a finger shaken in his face <laughs> at that point. Not that we condone butter theft. Not at all. And he was kind of skinny and had what some people describe as ladies' hands, so he was passed over for many types of employment opportunities that went to hardier fellows, uh, such as ranch hands, for instance. So he started working at Star Hotel, washing dishes, waiting on tables, and that's when he met up with Sombrero Jack. Sombrero Jack was the first... I suppose one could say bad character that Billy the Kid crossed paths with. And he noticed that Billy the Kid didn't have any real clothes to speak of. So he stole some laundry from a laundromat and gave it to Billy the Kid to wear. And he's like, but if you put this on, you know, you're you're um, risking your own hide because these are all stolen. And Billy the Kid was obviously caught when he donned these stolen threads and put in prison But he escaped, and this would become, as Katie is winking at me right now, a hallmark of his later life. So he got some money from one of the foster families he'd been a part of, and he headed toward Arizona to see if his stepfather could give him a hand with his troubles. And his stepfather absolutely refused. Real class act, that stepfather. Right. So here's Billy the Kid. He really is just a kid. He's skinny. He's fragile. He's got no work. No chance, really. And he's adrift in the desert. And it was while he was in Arizona that he met another outlaw named John Mackey, with whom he dabbled in horse thievery for a while. And soon after, he would engage in his very first act of manslaughter. And some people say it was self-defense, while others say it was just an act of cold-blooded killing. Um but he got into an altercation with Windy Cahill. Who was teasing him about his size, right? Yes, and ended up shooting him. And some people say, again, that he attacked Henry McCarty, Billy the Kid, who was much smaller, and Billy didn't really have a chance, and shot him in self-defense, while others say that it was just a little bit of sport on Billy the Kid's side. Well, no matter what actually happened, Billy the Kid was pretty scared, and so he got out of Dodge. And soon after, in New Mexico, he met up with Jesse Evans and his gang, termed very innovatively, the boys. I know. (laughs) No one saw that one coming. So he became incorporated into this little coterie of gunslingers. And even though the kid wasn't too fond of the idea of associating himself with outlaws, he realized that if you're going to get by in the American West, which was largely lawless at this time, you had to have some sort of protection. And the problem with the boys, the Jesse Evans gang, was that they were involved in the Lincoln County War. 
And basically, this is in the 1870s in New Mexico, and a guy named John Tunstall had moved there and realized that the entire place was run by Lawrence Murphy and John Dolan. They owned the only store in the entire county, and thanks to an army contract, had a beef monopoly as well. And he decided that wasn't fair and wanted to set up shop against them. And it just started this battle that went on for years, um, starting in 1878 when Murphy and Dolan tried to take Tunstall's horses for a quote-unquote outstanding debt that may or may not have existed, probably didn't. And that's where the gangs come in. And the kid actually turned on his gang when Tunstall offered him a job in exchange for his testimony against Dolan and company. And so the kid thought this was a pretty good offer. He wanted to do something a little more uh, uh, righteous than what he had been involved with. So he agreed, and he took on the new alias, William H. Bonney. This was an act of reinventing himself in a way. And became part of the Regulators, the name of the gang that was going to avenge the death of Tunstall, who was shot and killed by Sheriff William Brady and his posse, which included Jesse Evans's gang. The Regulators were semi-lawful until they killed three men, Bill Morton, Frank Banker, and William McCloskey. And they also set up a trap for Sheriff Brady. They'd been trying to do things by the book, trying to uh, file complaints and, and act in a, in a proper paperwork sort of way. But in the American West, that doesn't get you very far. They were almost forced into being outlaws. They were doing their best. But when the government, the local government, is corrupt... That doesn't leave you with a lot of options. And so it's Billy the Kid, some Mexican cowboys, some American cowboys, and they finally took up their guns and started the gunfights of the next couple years. And the regulators had a pretty good reputation until then, and then they became known as these awful outlaws. These gunfights were pretty violent. Sheriff Brady was killed in April of 1878 and was riddled with bullet holes. It just wasn't one shot that happened to get him. They made sure that he was dead. And the same with the deputy. They made a wiffle ball out of him. <laughs> it's unkind. I know. Death. I'm sorry. I shouldn't speak so irreverently of the past. Eventually, all of these separate skirmishes culminated in a final event at Alex McSween's house. And McSween, as you may recall, had been associated with Tunstall, the British businessman. He'd been his partner as well as his attorney. So the regulators are held up in McSween's house, and they're surrounded by Dolan's gang and the new sheriff. And they're panicking. And so finally, the kid is the only one trying to keep his wits about him and devises a plan where half the gang will go out one side of the house and the other will escape out the opposite so as to distract the gunslingers out front. And it works, except that, you know, half of the outlaws got shot and killed and Billy the Kid and his cohorts made off off the other side. So the escape plan wasn't the best, but it did save the kid's hide, which was, you know, what counted to him. And he he ran. He was an outlaw again for, what is this, the, what, third, fourth time? At I've least. lost count. <laughs> um, you know, he is famous for supposedly having committed as many murders as there were years of his life. 21. 21. Right. We don't know if, if that's actually true or if it was more like... Nine. Nine. <laughs> but he was good at getting himself off the hook. But when he got word that there was a new governor in Lincoln named Lou Wallace, he offered to surrender and come back to Lincoln and give a testimony 
in exchange for getting the the new governor's good graces. He said he was tired of being an outlaw and wanted to do the right thing. And kept writing him letter upon letter, you know, offering to give himself up in exchange for some kind of amnesty. And Lou Wallace, I believe at one point, did agree to it or made some sort of promise to him that maybe that was something they could do, which he later recanted. Wallace was still not fully aware of the kind of power and clout that Dolan and his gang had. So even if he had wanted to give the kid some sort of asylum and some sort of pardon, he wouldn't have been able to because his hands were tied. Any sense of court system or legality there was in Lincoln was overruled by Dolan. And... Billy the Kid at this time is so notorious from the Lincoln County War, the upshot of which no one won. And they just (laughs) (laughs) large gun battles every couple of days that it wasn't possible for him. I mean, politically to make that move. And not to mention that at this time, the newspapers are really getting hold of his name and splashing it everywhere. And maybe people had had some semblance of sympathy for him in the past. But now, now that he shoots people and then leaves... And gives lots of interviews about it while he's in jail. <laughs> People are, you know, they're, they're thinking he's trouble. No one wants him in town. Um, so he goes off to Fort Sumner. So he goes off to Fort Sumner. And there he gets embroiled in more gang conflicts. Surprise, surprise. And then the opposition posse of his kills a deputy named James Carlisle. And the kid gets blamed, even though it was supposedly friendly fire that killed the deputy. He's so notorious at this point. Anywhere he goes, he's like a little black rain cloud on the west. <laughs> Trouble just follows him, and it's so easy to scapegoat him. Well, and at this point, I believe he has a, a bounty on his head, and they are after him. That's one too many people. And it's about time the law catches up with Billy the Kid. And the law came in the form of Pat Garrett. He was an appointed U.S. Marshal on the hunt. And on December 23rd, 1880, he trapped him. And got him to surrender, threw him in prison, and he was convicted of murdering Sheriff Brady and sentenced to hang. To hang. So it's April 1881. He's in prison. He's supposed to hang. And being Billy the Kid, he murders his guards and escapes. Good job, Billy the Kid. (laughs) (laughs) This one's on us. So where does he go? Well, back to Sumner because he feels somewhat safe there. It's a place where he feels that he somewhat belongs. But Garrett is not going to let him get away with this. So he gets word, supposedly through this guy, Maxwell, who he knows, that the kid is in town. And Maxwell is somewhat friendly with the kid, or at least the kid thinks that he is. And on the night of July 14th, 1881, he came sniffing around for dinner. And the events of the evening of July 14th, 1881 are a bit murky. But how most people interpret the story is this. Billy the kid knocks on Maxwell's door, hoping that he can get his dinner. And he enters the house, and it's pretty dark. And he's a little bit uncertain of what's going on because he sees two strange men on the front porch. The men were actually Garrett's two deputies. Well, Billy the Kid proceeds inside the house and he can make out a shadowy form in Maxwell's room. He calls out asking about the two men. Gets no answer. So he calls out again, but this time asks the question in Spanish. And at this point, Garrett is pretty sure that's Billy the Kid. So he aims his gun and shoots. And then Maxwell and Garrett slip outside. And they come back in, and they ascertain that, yes, indeed, that was Billy the Kid, and now he is dead on Maxwell's floor. 
Although some people refused to believe that Billy the Kid died at all, and there were several people who for years pretended that they were him, and he had escaped that evening in a staged death. It's pretty believable, given all of his stunts prior to his supposed death. But for people who really get into American West lore and sorts of legendary figures like Billy the Kid, it's rather anticlimactic to think that Billy the Kid died after an ambush. I mean, that's the sort of trap that he's been springing his whole life for other people. But alas, it got him in the end. But today, uh, the state of New Mexico really does have Billy the Kid to thank for bringing a thriving tourism industry to its uh, fair borders where people can see different spots where Billy the Kid engaged in gunslinging and all sorts of pranks, harmless and not. So if you want to go see these stomping grounds of Billy the Kid, that's where you should go. And if you want more information on the Wild West and guns and gunslingers, be sure to check out the website at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Home and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Home, a PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.